Welcome to the new Education Endowment Foundation podcast entitled Evidence Into Action. This series of podcasts will involve experts from across the field of education, from fantastic researchers, alongside brilliant teachers and school leaders. Our mission is straightforward, to tackle the most important educational topics and to offer you plenty of evidence-based ideas to reflect upon and, and hopefully to put into action in the classroom. The Education Endowment Foundation, EF for short, is an independent charity dedicated to breaking the link between family income and educational achievement. My name is Alex Quigley, National Content Manager at the EF, and I have the pleasure of being able to host this series and this first episode. The first topic in the series focuses on how schools can make the difference for disadvantaged peoples, and we explore the big picture and challenges um, faced by schools today. In this episode of the series, we'll talk first to Natalie Pereira, Executive Director and Head of Research at the Education Policy Institute, an independent research institute, which Natalie co-founded in 2016. We'll then go on to speak to Professor Becky Francis, CEO at the EF, who'll explore, again, that bigger picture of disadvantage in the school system. Before we then hear from Sonia Thompson, a brilliant head teacher, St. Matthew's CV Primary School, based in the heart of Birmingham. First, let's begin by chatting to Natalie Pereira. Okay, so it's my great pleasure to talk to Natalie Pereira. Um, and first, um, thank you, Natalie, for coming. I, we'd like to find out just a little bit more about yourself and about the Education Policy Institute and, and where making the difference for disadvantaged peoples fits into your work. Great. So um, the aim of the Education Policy Institute is to improve outcomes for all pupils but with a particular focus on closing the gap between the most disadvantaged pupils and the rest. And the way we do that is through evidence-based research that focuses on understanding the issues faced by disadvantaged pupils and identifying whether current policies are helping them or not. Okay, that's great. So I think... Um, I won't be the only one to say that I think the EPI research has been really important over the last couple of years. And I know we've worked with EDF research schools who have been using particularly the most recent annual report from 2020 um, as being a really definitive um, piece of evidence on understanding disadvantage. Could you please just offer listeners a bit, bit more of a, a summary and key insights from that research? Of course. The annual report that we published in the summer of 2020 looks at the cohort of pupils who took uh, exams in 2019. So it's important to recognise this is a cohort that took exams before the COVID pandemic hit. Um, we found some really important findings from, from that research. Firstly, that the gap between disadvantaged pupils and their peers at the end of secondary is still over 18 months. But importantly, that gap has now stopped closing. So we were seeing small increases to the gap in the early years and secondary school from around 2017. In 2019, not only did the gap 
continue with those trends for early years and secondary, but we also saw the gap for primary pupils widen as well, and that, that widened for the first time in primary for over a decade. Another important finding is that persistently disadvantaged pupils are much further behind at around 22.7 months by the end of secondary school. And for this group of pupils who have been on free school meals for at least 80% of their time at school, the gap for those pupils has barely closed in the last decade. And we also find that there are more persistently disadvantaged pupils in secondary schools. So the proportion of pupils who have been eligible for free school meals for more than 80% of their school lives has grown. And that tells us something about the rates of children and families in poverty in our schools today. And finally, we found some important findings relating to ethnicity. Now, we've always known that the, 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 there's clear variation in the performance amongst different ethnic groups. What we found this year was that for Black Caribbean pupils, the gap between those pupils and white British pupils has grown by over four months over the last eight years. So Black Caribbean pupils have fallen four months behind their white British peers over the last eight years. That's really interesting. I'd really recommend if any listener hasn't looked at that report to do so. I mean, some of the insights around um, disadvantage and, and that that difference between persistently persistent disadvantage and then you mentioned ethnicity there's geographical differences and I think we might come back to some of those in terms of the importance for school leaders in particular I, I want to just pick up a point you made near the start that that annual report summarized um, outcomes for for children who sat exams in 2019 and of course we've had <laughs> COVID-19 happen since then um, what's your perspective on the potential impact of partial school closures over the past six months um, on children from disadvantaged backgrounds? It's still too early to quantify the precise impact of lost learning time. And of course, EEF did a really helpful report um, earlier on in the summer, but we don't know the actual impact um, and of course, we're still facing lots of uncertainty over this academic year with further national and local lockdowns in place. What we do know is that children from disadvantaged backgrounds are less likely to have had access to online learning during lockdown periods. That includes access to technology, to online face-to-face teaching and to a, a, a safe space for them to be able to focus on studying. And we also know that since schools reopened in September, absence rates are higher in some of the more disadvantaged um, and poorer performing areas. So for example, in Nosley, we've seen a 40% absent, absent rate over the autumn term. So all the signs are pointing to that gap potentially widening as a result of COVID. 
EPI are doing some really interesting work using Renaissance learning data over the course of this year. And that's work that we've been commissioned to do by the Department for Education. So using timely assessment data from Renaissance Learning, we'll be looking at the attainment of pupils this year compared to last year, which is pre-COVID. And that will, that will tell us a bit about the scale of lost learning. And we'll also be able to look at whether children catch up or not over the course of this academic year and we'll be able to see whether the gap is likely to be growing or closing. Well, that's really useful and definitely one to look out for. I think that the, the nuances there about lost learning and, and then what's being caught up and, and the different assessments that schools are using, I, I think these are definitely questions that school leaders are grappling with. Uh, and, and you mentioned in that answer about you know the current uncertainty. I think if we look at the annual report, but then a bit more beyond some of the other research that EPI has conducted, um, what, what do you think are the implications of, of what's coming out of, of your research for school leaders in particular? I think a really important takeaway is that we need to recognise schools and school leaders cannot fix this entirely by themselves. It requires public policy to look again and policymakers to look again at things like welfare support, housing and public health. They're all important factors when we think about how well a child performs over the course of his or her life. But we know that school leaders can still make a difference um, and, and they can look at their own approach to make sure that they're consistently aligned with the evidence, particularly in relation to identifying pupils with additional needs and getting support to those pupils early on. And of course, focusing on high quality teaching, including CPD and teacher um, mentoring and retention. We also think that um, based on the evidence, leaders should avoid policies, including setting and streaming of pupils, and also review their own internal policies, like behaviour policies, to make sure that they're not biased against particular groups. Okay, well, that's, that's really interesting. So the, there's two sides there. There's the, definitely the policy and the impact of poverty outside the school gates, but there are also areas to identify in terms of you know, there's, there's useful evidence to steer some practices for school leaders as well. That was really, really helpful distinction. If I pose a final question, and it's probably a, a quite a tricky one, um, seeking out those kinds of, you know, just a minute kind of catch-all responses, but if there was one policy or approach um, that you think could make the biggest difference to support the attainment of people from disadvantaged backgrounds in the coming year or years, what, what would you offer as that one policy or approach? I really think we need a joined up and evidence-based child poverty strategy that brings together all of those services that affect young people, including welfare, housing, early intervention, health, and of course, education. 
Well, that, that's really, really pithy, really uh, important point. Thank you, Natalie. And, and thanks again for joining this podcast and um, for all the great work and research that's coming out of, of EPI, both finding it helpful individually. I find it really useful myself. I know um, at the EF, uh, we find it really useful. And I know lots of schools and school leaders who are engaging with it. So thank you. Thank you. Hello, Becky. Welcome to the first Evidence into Action EEF podcast on making the difference for disadvantaged peoples. Uh, it'd be great to, to start just finding out a little bit more about your background, how that's linked to making a positive difference for disadvantaged peoples in our education system. Thanks, Alex. Well, a golden thread through my career has been a focus on educational inequality. Um, I began my academic career focused on gender and attainment in schools. And of course, we can never look at one variable in isolation. So that expertise very quickly progressed to taking in ethnicity and social class as well. And I've also always been interested in making an impact with academic research beyond the ivory tower. So that's um, taken in a policy interest and involvement. Um, I've been involved in analysing programmes based on sort of school improvement and with attempts to um, improve um, uh, quality and mitigate inequality, such as the academies programme, uh, different methods of school improvement and the characteristics of that uh, within school segregation issues, including pupil grouping and so forth. Um, and I've had, of course, policy roles and consultancy. Um, I was standing advisor to the Education Select Committee for some time, um, as well as, of course, uh, leadership roles, such as um, my last role as director of the UCL IOE. And I guess that the um, research uh, and the work of the Education Endowment Foundation combines three of my key passions, you know, research itself, uh, education and schooling and social justice and that mission to uh, narrow the gap for social disadvantage and attainment, uh, which has really dr driven my interest to date. So it's a real privilege to be leading the EEF um, and working with such a talented team. Great to hear. Uh, probably um, you were certainly unsuspecting about starting and, and quite quickly moving into a global pandemic, which has affected schools in, in countless different ways. Can you tell us a little bit more about the research that the EEF has done and is continuing to do um, to look at the impact of um, the COVID pandemic on schools and, and particularly that impact on disadvantaged pupils? Well, it was fascinating at the beginning of the pandemic, you know, it wasn't just health research that was limited in the area of addressing a pandemic, it was also educational research. We moved very quickly to um, develop a rapid evidence assessment on the impact of school closures on the socioeconomic gap for attainment. Um, and the findings based on um, the international literature on learning loss due to school closures, whether that was um, summer learning loss, whether it was school absenteeism and disasters and so forth, 
the the findings were very concerning. Um, an analysis that showed a likely widening of the gap from the period of lockdown, um, anywhere between 11% to 75% growth. And of course, um, we're beginning to see uh, support for those findings coming through in actuality now, um, as kids have been returning to schools um, and the impact really showing. Um, our, our baseline analysis was that um, that impact was going to reverse the entire decade of progress in the slight um, narrowing of the gap that we'd seen over the last decade, um, which is, of course, incredibly disheartening, um, but also emphasises the scale of the challenge that we now have to support young people going forward. We've also tried to focus on other uh, useful information for schools. So, for, for example, we noticed that there's very little prior research on effective remote learning, which, of course, is pivotal uh, for the present situation. So we've um, conducted another rapid evidence assessment on remote learning and um, effective practice, and that can be found on our website. And we're also commissioning a new series of projects um, analysing teachers and pupils' experiences uh, during lockdown and the impact of um, the new arrangements that we've seen uh, during the uh, pandemic. I guess throughout all of this, Alex, um, we illustrate the commitment to supporting schools and trying to provide schools with the best evidence that can inform their practice in an incredibly challenging situation. Thank you, Becky. Uh, can I just pick up on a bit more specifics around disadvantaged pupils? Because, you know, a lot of the evidence um, been undertaken in the past few months is trying to get underneath what's happening. And I know recently you spoke at the Educational Select Committee about the underachievement of white working class children. Could you tell us a little bit more around um, disadvantaged children, the intersectionality and, and how it might be useful to think about, um, think through a lens of white working class underachievement or, or via gender or ethnicity and, and how that might be helpful and, and where it also might have limitations? So the Education Select Committee inquiry was focused on white working class boys. And so that inquiry takes in aspects of social class, gender and ethnicity. Um, I think there are three points that I'd want to make here. One is that household wealth is by far the strongest predictor of educational outcomes in the UK context. So that focus on social disadvantage is really important. And I'll come back to that in a second. Secondly, that gender and ethnicity intersect with socioeconomic background. So we can see, for example, that for every uh, ethnic group, free school meals kids do worse um, in terms of their educational attainment than their more affluent peers. But this is complicated further, both by gender and by different ethnic groups and so forth. Um, but it's really important to point out that this isn't just about white pupils. So, for example, black Caribbean heritage free school meals boys are as low attaining as white working class free school meal boys. 
Um, so it's really important that we don't simply exclusively focus on, on, on one particular group. Um, the third point that I'd want to make is that the disadvantaged are a very large group. Um, the Great British Class Survey combined the traditional working class category, which stands at sort of 14% of the population, with the emergent service sector and the precariat. And together, those different groups made up about 50% of the population. Um, so we can see that we're talking a very, about potentially a very large group of pupils when we talk about socially disadvantaged kids. And then of the kids, even on free school meals, which, as you know, are about a quarter of the pupil population, um, a third of those pupils are what we would refer to as the persistently disadvantaged. And they, of course, are a far harder to reach group um, than maybe the broader ever FSM group. And the point that I'm trying to make is that, of course, this speaks to different local contexts, different demographic contexts, and schools then um, need to be able to take that nuance to address their pupil demographic and their particular school circumstance in particular ways. What we want to do is be able to inform that nuanced approach with good high quality evidence of what can be most impactful um, in addressing uh, uh, social disadvantage. So that was really helpful in, in terms of really getting underneath the different groups and, and the different challenges that pupils are facing at the moment. And, and I think the emphasis here is on school leaders and teachers really responding to their own cohort and those local challenges. Um, I, I want to focus on some of the positive solutions. because I think there are really exciting developments at the moment. Uh, could you talk a little bit more about some of the exciting work the EF is doing to support making that difference for disadvantaged pupils? Well, a key message is that we're going to need a concerted effort to address the challenges of learning loss and supporting pupils' educational and emotional needs um, post the pandemic. Um, we're in such an unpredictable terrain, we still don't know how long this situation is going to last. Um, but then it's more important than ever that we take an evidence-led approach to this. And some exciting uh, developments that we've been able to help with at the EEF are reflected in the National Tutoring Programme and the Nuffield Early Language Intervention. Um, both of these are driven by the evidence um, and we've been able to uh, support um, the opportunities into the school system. So the Nuffield Early Language Intervention um, speaks to the points that I've made about language and literacy and their importance. Um, this is an intervention that has been proven to be effective through two uh, Education Endowment Foundation trials, uh, randomised control trials. Um, and now uh, the government is rolling out this opportunity um, for primary schools to access that provision. And the National Tutoring Programme again draws on the long-standing evidence that we've curated about the effectiveness of both one-to-one -one and small group tuition 
And of, of course, the opportunity that tuition provides to offer a bespoke um, approach to individual pupils learning loss in different subject areas uh, through the pandemic, and then to be able to support students under, of course, the guidance of their teacher. It's really important that the classroom teacher is in the driving seat here. Um, but really be able to, to be able to support young people with some catch up of their learning. Um, and the National Tutoring Programme is basically providing high quality tutors to schools um, to be able to support with this agenda. And it also incorporates um, a programme of academic mentors who are graduates um, who, who go into the classroom in schools in areas of social disadvantage uh, to again support the classroom teacher. That's really great to hear. Um, I'm just going to end, end with a perhaps tricky question actually. Um, it's given the current circumstances, is there one policy or approach that you think could make the biggest difference to support the attainment of pupils from disadvantaged backgrounds in the coming year and, and you know facing all the challenges we discussed but, but probably a legacy beyond that? Well, again, Alex, it's supporting teacher quality. Um, it, it sounds almost mundane to say in the situation of the pandemic and the crisis for schools at the moment. And of course, I'm very mindful as I say this, that many of the challenges that um, schools and pupils will face at present come from outside the school, you know, about increasing poverty, uh, issues around nutrition and IT access that all affect young people's readiness to learn. But if we focus on education and schooling itself, again, we know that it's teaching quality that makes the most difference to pupil progress. And as I've said already, that, that that's doubly important for kids from disadvantaged backgrounds. So we're focused on supporting programs to support and retain teachers such as the Early Career Framework and the MPQs. Um, we, we've been involved in trying to curate the evidence um, for those programmes. Um, and I think a message for schools would be investing in CPD uh, remains as important as ever, and perhaps doubly so to support teachers um, facing the challenges of lockdown. So this issue will continue to be pivotal. Thank you, Becky. A really um, positive message to end on there. And I think it'll segue really nicely to um, our next guest, Sonia, who'll talk about her work at St. Matthew's in Birmingham. But, but just once again, Becky, thank you for your time. It's been really fascinating. Thanks, Alex. So I'm really excited to speak to Sonia Thompson um, and rather than uh, go into a biography, it'd just be great, Sonia, for you to share a little bit more about yourself, your background in teaching, your school and the work you're doing to make a positive difference for disadvantaged pupils in our school system. Okay. Um, hi, Alex. Um, it's lovely to be here. Um, Sonia Thompson, I am the head of St Matthew's Teaching and Research School in Neachels, Birmingham. Um, gosh, I've been teaching for about 20 years now. It's been a long time um, in various roles. Um, relatively new head teacher, 
um, started in 2019. Um, and then it's been a real roller coaster ride, but really exciting. Um, the good thing is that I actually worked at St. Matthews uh, for about eight years prior to becoming the head teacher. So I've kind of been on the journey with St. Matthews um, through some really interesting times. We are a school that's setting a quite um, deprived area of Birmingham called Neachels. Um, I think if you kind of looked at the stats, we'd be um, fifth quartile, most deprived, um, third in Birmingham, fifth in Britain. But I think one of the positive things about um, working in an area um, like this is that it really is exciting and it really does drive you as a school um, to do the very best that you can do. So I think out of that, um, St Matthews, um, for us, we've achieved quite a lot. Um, I don't know how much it means to other people, but we, we are um, an Austin outstanding school. And as I said, whether or not that means anything to anybody, um, we, are, we are a teaching school, as I said. So we do support a lot of other schools. Um, and one of the things that we, we've been really clear about is our practice must be evidence informed. And I think we put um, a lot of our successes um, down to the fact that there's lots of things that we've done. Um, and of course, one of the things that we, we know we have to do is, is be ambitious and challenging. Um, but we've tried to make sure that our decisions and our, certainly our school improvement decisions have been very much based around research. Um, and because we know that the time with our, with our pupils is precious um, and we want our teachers when they're standing in front of our pupils to offer um, the very best that we can offer. Not saying we always get it right, um, but certainly that's our aim. That's great. One of the things that stood out for me, Sonia, about about your work and, and the school is how you don't take any notion of a deficit model for your pupils and, and where they're from. It's a real focus of celebrating what they bring to school and the school community. Can you tell us a little bit more about, about that focus of your work? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a real, for us, it's a real privilege. And I think... Um, coming from a background of, of, of what would be classed as, uh, as pupil premium myself, um, I see the absolute crucialness of having people in, standing in front of you every day who are ambitious for you, who want the very best for you, who want you to have choices. Um, we celebrate our children's heritage culture. Um, we celebrate the fact that they can speak various languages, that their parents are well um, versed in, in, in knowing countries around the world. We celebrate that. And, and as you said, we never see that as a deficit, but it's a positive. And I think it's that it's that mutual respect that we offer to our parents to say that actually we've got a lot to learn from you. And we don't want you to leave what you know and what you do at our door. We want you to bring it into school with you. And we want to be able to celebrate that and share it with you. And I think it's on that platform of mutual respect that then we, we then offer our children a really ambitious curriculum, um, enabling them to learn um, and grow their knowledge and deepen their knowledge and have fantastic experiences. Um, and really that underpinning idea that just because you're in Neachels, it doesn't mean you can't do all the exciting things and have that wider curriculum um, that a lot of other schools offer. We make sure that we, we have that, those things as well. It's an integral really to what we offer. So as, as part of the offer, I think it's fair to say that at St. Matthew's, you've made literacy a, a really explicit focus for yeah. every pupil, particularly pupils from disadvantaged uh, backgrounds. Can you tell us a little bit more about, about the rationale there and about, and about the work that you undertake? 
I think we were very clear um, from the start of our journey that reading in all of its guises was really important. Um, the ability for children to, um, to, to have really strong oracy skills, um, that whole, as you said, that reading, writing uh, and, and speaking link, that interconnectedness of all of those areas. Uh, we thought it was vital for us as a school to really pay homage to those areas and build them into our curriculum. Um, one of the one of the really, I'd say the golden thread in our school is this idea that we want children to read for pleasure and have agency in terms of being readers um, and not just read because we've told them to, but want to read um, outside of school and want to have those choice, make those choices about what they read. Um, we also want children to find pleasure in this idea of, 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 of learning how to read, of being taught how to read, of being taught how to comprehend. For us, that's got to be as joyful. Um, and the evidence is clear. I think, we again, we've worked from an evidence base, which says that, that children that read for pleasure um, do well in terms of reading for progress and also do well across the curriculum. So for us, as I said, the interconnectedness of oracy, uh, of reading and of writing have been really important components um, as part of our work towards supporting our disadvantaged pupils. And you've made a, a nice link there between um, literacy skills and being able to read and write to access the curriculum. And, and earlier on, you talked about having a, an ambitious, challenging curriculum. Mm -hmm. Do you talk a little bit more about some of the decisions you've made around curriculum and, and how you think that benefits all the pupils at, at St. Matt's in particular? Mm -hmm. I think very early on we made, and I would really say going back to the 2014 curriculum, um, we, we really unpicked what it was telling us to do. Um, and one of the things, the decisions that we made was that we really did want to be very subject specific and offer our children the opportunity to understand what it is to be a scientist, to understand what it is to be a mathematician, what it, what it is to be a historian, and offer our pupils a deeper understanding of those subjects and the beauty within those subject areas. And actually what those subject areas offer to us as a school is opportunities for children to learn more, to find out more, to investigate more, um, to go on visits and trips and experience um, listening to experts in their field um, and, and it's, it's offered us an opportunity to give uh, our children a broader, um, more exciting, challenging curriculum as I said um, that I, I hope enables them to, to, to not just want to learn and, and get have more knowledge but also want to um, celebrate learning and to be positive about learning and to take that love of learning into their secondary schools and hopefully further on. Um, so of course we want them to attain. Um, that's part of one of our mottos. We've got CAP, courage, courage, attainment and pride. So we want our children to attain, but we also want them to love learning uh, um, and to, to, to be children that want to, to continue to learn um, uh, and to do well as they move through all the phases of education. Yeah, I think I think the philosophy, St. Matthews, it really stands out for me. And and it really is rooted in the pupils that you teach and and being aspirational for them. <laughs> Earlier on, you mentioned that um, being a school leader now and, and maybe in the past, but certainly now is a bit of a roller coaster. Um, oh. I think I think people can recognize that uh, comparison. Um, so we know that, you know, the past months have probably been as challenging as as any other, you know, kind of year in school for teachers and, and school leaders. Mm -hmm. um, 
Can you tell us about some of the ways that you've approached supporting your pupils during partial lockdowns and and what again what how did you go about informing those decisions and and I'm sure you'll end up talking about you know particular pupils who 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 needed that additional yes. support factors. I think for us, um, and certainly we, I, I've got to put my hands up in the air, um, like a lot of schools, we were not prepared um, in various ways. Um, we were always quite positive, but we knew that certainly even having some sort of online platform um, that we all understood and that we were all confident and competent about, um, it took us a while. It took us a while. Um, but we were, very, as I said, we were positive. We were very, very clear that we, we wanted to, to get online um, and support our children as soon as possible. Um, prior to doing that, we were calling all of our pupils um, on a weekly basis, checking in, um, particularly those vulnerable pupils who we know that, that just needed that additional support. Um, we also made the decision that things like reading for pleasure wouldn't stop. Uh, we would find a way and, and teachers um, recording themselves, telling stories and, and sending those to parents and families. Um, was part of, uh, uh, of what we, we, we enabled ourselves to do quite quickly. We were also very conscious that um, a lot of our parents didn't have um, hardware um, and being in, a, in an area of deprivation, we, we, we very quickly uncovered that that number grew and grew and grew as the time went on. So we had to very quickly um, use our own laptops, source laptops, um, get our technician in to sort um, uh, things out for us. Uh, but again, uh, we were very pragmatic about the fact that we, we had to get this done um, and we wanted to do it as quickly as possible. Uh, so again, really proud of my, of my staff in the way that we supported each other to make sure that our online provision um, got stronger and stronger and stronger as the time went on. Um, I think when our children did come back in, um, and, and I must say, again, we were, we were quite um, disappointed with the numbers that, of children that actually came back. And um, one of the things that our parents were telling us, there, were, there was a real fear factor for our parents. So it was about really encouraging them to send their children in. And, and not, not many parents took us up on the offer. So we had to find a way of, of, of doing that blended learning for our teachers. How would we support our children in school? And then how would we support um, those children? Because the bulk of our school was still at home. So we had to make sure that that provision was strong. So again, just working out ways as a team um, to make that happen. And then there was a real concern about how many children we would get back into the building in September. Um, so there's a lots of groundwork that we did, lots of encouraging, lots of going into homes. We put our um, shoes on and walk, went out um, in a safe way, of course, um, to those children who, who, those families who needed a little bit more encouragement. And I must say, you know, again, really proud of our staff. Um, we were very quickly able to um, get our, um, we, we have good attendance numbers in, um, prior to, to lockdown. Um, and we were very quickly able to get a couple of weeks in back to our numbers. In fact, we had the DFE contact us last week to ask us, how did you do that? What did you do? Share that with others. Um, and we are very passionate about our children being in the building and our, 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 our harass parents from now until dawn, now until, you know, the dawn to get them to understand that this is where they need to be. Um, and, and we're trying to do that for their children as safely as possible. Yeah. I think it's really helpful to hear that kind of pragmatic approach where, you know, recognising that early on things weren't in place. That, you know, I don't think 
there's a school leader in the country who could, you know, open up and say, yeah, we had it all lined up, mm. you know. And I think particularly, um, you know, in specific areas where you talked about some of the, the gaps in technology that yeah. actually we knew, you know, we could assume in the first place, but it wasn't until you start digging further that it really starts to emerge just how much, you know, of a gap there is in terms of technology and all, all the support factors wrapped around technology use. So that was really useful. I think it strikes that that your work is uh, this perfect mix of humility, but also expertise and, and investing in your staff and that the teachers at St. Matthew's, you know, there's, there's support there for their training, but also they engage outwardly and, and engage with expertise and with evidence. Um, it's probably on the end of expertise rather than humility, my final question. Um, it's one of those questions where I'm going to ask um, for one, you know, one kind of grand answer. We probably know it's a little bit limited, but, but useful all the same. What would be the one policy or approach that you think would make the biggest difference to support the attainment of pupils from disadvantaged backgrounds in the coming year or years ahead? Um, I do think we've got to invest in our teachers. We've got to invest in um, what we know is going to work. And one of the things that we know is that um, the professional development of teachers, so that what they deliver in front of the, the pupils on a day-to-day -day basis, um, if that quality is there, that is going to make the difference. Um, so the more we, we, we spend time, we pay for teachers' time, um, the more then we can and build on their well-being, the more then that we can work on ensuring that our practice is evidence-informed. Um, and I think for me that that is a, a real driver, um, that evidence-informed practice, what the best bets are, what we know works. So that, as I said, when teachers stand in front of the children and deliver on a daily basis, they're confident. Um, they're confident that what they're doing ha has, has a strong possibility of making a difference um, for our disadvantaged pupils. Yeah, I, I think that's a really strong message. And I think at the moment, you know, a reality is that some of that funding and time is being diverted, you know, to managing other challenges. So there's there's a real, there's a newfound challenge, isn't there, support teachers um, and to fund that time and, and that wraparound expertise um, for, to, to get to high quality teaching, which is where the best evidence indicates we should plow our efforts in, into the classroom. Thank you, Sonia. It's been great to hear from you and the work at St. Matthew's. Um, all the best um, in your continuing brilliant work. Thank you. It was a real pleasure to be able to speak to Natalie, Becky and Sonia, who in their various leadership roles in the, in the education system are, are doing amazing work. I think for me, a, a key theme that emerges is there is a big picture of disadvantage and, and it's a complex, multifaceted picture. And, and it's national, but also when you look at the um, report shared by Natalie, it's got real geographical, local um, references. It's got real um, geographical, regional differences. And, and what you hear in Sonia's example, St. Matthew's and, and that community in Birmingham, is there's a real set of local solutions here. There's a real adaptation of how you approach high quality teaching, which it might include curriculum, might include literacy, um, but it's evidence informed. It's supporting teachers to implement it well. It's got a real investment in teachers. And, it, and if there is a that final word, it probably would be that investment, that 
investing in our teachers, investing in the school system so we can, particularly for schools with high disadvantage, support pupils. And, and the pupil premium has existed now for a number of years, but given the challenges of this year, there may just be a, a kind of a re-emphasis or a kind of um, a revisiting of, of the demands faced by disadvantaged pupils and, and the supports needed for school and how we invest in great quality teaching and school leaders. So thank you for listening to the first of a new series of Evidence into Action, the EEF podcast, and we look forward to sharing a Christmas special um, coming soon. Um, so keep listening.